Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation's Get to College program. Based in South Haven, Jackson, and Ocean Springs, Get to College advisors help students and families plan and pay for college. Learn more at woodwardhines.org. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Friday, May 18th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, trustees of Mississippi's eight public universities are giving final approval for tuition increases next fall. We'll have details. We value the people of our university. They are who make our university. So we're trying always at all times to be as accessible and affordable as we can. And the U.S. Surgeon General is in Mississippi to address the ongoing opioid epidemic. Then, do you know how to respond if someone stops breathing or is bleeding heavily? Find out what you can do and how to do it. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The cost of a degree from a university in Mississippi is increasing again. Public universities in Mississippi are raising tuition by an average of 4% next fall. The Institutions of Higher Learning Board of Trustees approved the increase at its monthly meeting in Jackson Thursday. Increases range from 2% at Mississippi Valley State University to 5.6% at Delta State University. LaCurtis Powell is president of the Student Government Association at Jackson State University. The senior political science major tells MPB's Ashley Norwood the hike can cause issues for out-of-state students. Tuition is, is such a big thing because like, if you're out of state, sometimes you're not able to pay. So you get purged from the university and have to find uh, any other means of getting an education, whether it's going back home, going to a community college, or finding some type of resource um, and scholarship. So, I mean, it's, it's a big burden on us. So we're just trying to uh, maneuver through it, trying to figure out ways how we can keep all our students. How are you paying for school right now? While I'm in RTC, so I'm an RTC cadet, so half of my um, tuition or my reward is paid, and I just pay whichever one um, I decide not to get covered on my scholarship. So the part that's not covered by scholarship, are you working? Are your parents um, helping you? I do work study, and I have outside um, money coming in for my parents, so that's typically how I cover my education. So when you heard about the tuition increase, were you at all alarmed? It definitely was alarming. Um, a lot of students was not okay with it. Because a lot of us is already like kind of suffering from tuition already. So with that increase, it's kind of like, hey, we need to look for uh, any other means to get some more money, whether it's scholarships, you know, some type of other funding. You're at Jackson State, which is HBCU. Do you fear that any students may not be able to continue with their education? Um, well, not necessarily because, I mean, even though it might not be a lot of students that can uh, get their tuition stuff covered, Jackson State always seems to find some type of way at the end to keep our students in, whether it's finding some type of uh, another budget to cover their tuition. So I think things will work out. Like I said, with the student government, we always helping and looking out, giving out scholarships also. So we're going to try our best to keep all our students. JSU senior LaCurtis Powell. University officials say they now rely more on tuition dollars for budgeting. Jeffrey Vitter is chancellor at the University of Mississippi. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood the institution will have the second highest increase among schools. Tuition increases were approved and uh, they ranged. uh, We were roughly uh, kind of in the middle between, if you look at the percentage rates, now we have a higher tuition overall 
than some of the other universities. So in dollar amounts, it was closer to the high range. Okay, so the tuition increase, is that to keep up with, like, the national increase of higher education? Um, you know, finances, are are there particular academic programs that the tuition increase uh, may be able to adhere to? What exactly will that increase uh, work for? Well, we're dealing with a decrease in state funding that reached uh, roughly 14% from two years ago, and we're very fortunate this year that state funding was stable and actually had a a very slight increase, but we're dealing with a lot of costs that increase each year that we are obligated to cover, uh, such as insurance and other liabilities, and those amount to uh, roughly eight million dollars. We are also have not given we have not given faculty raises and staff raises to our employees uh, for two years, and even two years ago it was a very modest 1% pool, and we felt that it was really important to retain our very strong employees by by giving them a, uh, a raise. So it's all based on merit, um, but it's important because we value the people of our university. They are who make our university. So we're trying always at all times to be as accessible and affordable as we can. Uh, We have, among our peers, one of the lowest tuitions uh, across the board, and we're always trying to keep our tuition as low as possible. Um, so with the state, you know, state legislators, and do you feel that they are supporting um, just this whole kind of pie chart that makes up the budget of universities? What do you think about that? I think if we can get back to the budget of two years ago, uh, we'll be able to do a lot of important things for the state. We'll be able to actually not increase tuition. Uh, I think we'll also be able to start getting toward the performance funding formula that exists, but we've never been able to actually implement it. Because unless you have new monies, if you change the allocation, even though it's based on good reasons, it means that some schools will actually lose funds. And that's a hard thing to do when we've we've been uh, really cut to the bone in many ways. So we have a lot of strong supporters in our legislature. The hope is that we have the revenues so that we'll be able to allocate those funds to higher education, which I think is the most important thing for the future of our state. It is the driver that makes our people successful and able to create for themselves a successful and rewarding life for themselves and generations to follow. Dr. Jeffrey Bitter is the Chancellor of the University of Mississippi. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Officials say costs will remain among the lowest in the nation. IHL Commissioner Glenn Boyce says the cost of tuition in Mississippi is among the lowest in the nation. If you just look at the states that are touching us, Alabama's average tuition uh, is $9,543. Uh, at their public institutions. Now, that's a 29% higher tuition rate for a state who sits right there at our border. Tuition makes up more than half of the budget at Mississippi's public universities. In other news, the Mississippi Attorney General's office is reminding consumers a deadline is approaching. Those individuals who believe they were victims of the Western Union scam have until May 31st to file your claim. Bridget Wiggins is with the Consumer Protection Division of the AG's office. She tells us more. 
the Western Union scam settlement was entered into to provide compensation to victims who had been a victim of a fraud-induced transfer that used Western Union. So basically, if you were victim to a scam that instructed you to transmit money through Western Union during the time period of January 1st, 2004 through January 19th, 2017, then you may be eligible to receive compensation under this settlement. However, in order for that determination to be made, you must fill out a complaint form. And fortunately for a lot of our consumers, the deadline to submit that claim form has been extended to May 31st. Now, if you've already filed a complaint with our office, then we likely have already sent that directly to Western Union. But if you have not previously filed a complaint with our office that covered a scam or transfer that was during this time period, then you may contact Western Union directly and get the information you need to complete that claim form because that settlement will be administered through a claim administrator who will be reviewing those claim forms and handling the transmission of those funds. And of course, if anyone has any questions about that before they want to contact Western Union, they are always welcome to contact our office. Your office is consumer protection. So what do consumers most need to do to protect themselves? We always try to educate our consumers because we always say the best defense against being the victim of a scam is to be educated about that scam first. So we try to educate our consumers on on things that they need to look out for. How often should someone check their credit? Because it seems like if someone is stealing your identity, then they're going to purchase things in your name. Well, we encourage consumers to check their credit at least once a year because there are resources out there that allow consumers to check their credit report at least once a year without the charge. And what we tell consumers is that benefit is available for each of the three credit unions. So you may want to stagger that out. If you have one free credit report that is available to you from each of the three credit reporting agencies, then you might want to just stagger that out and say, for instance, make the request every four months. Say, for instance, you... In January, you may want to make your request to one particular reporting agency. And then so in the the next four months, you check your credit with the second credit reporting agency. And then thereafter, you know, in the next four months, you check your credit with the third reporting agency. And that way you can check your credit three times a year because you get one per year from each of the reporting agents. So if anyone has any questions about that, they're certainly welcome to either go to our website or contact our office, and we'll be happy to mail them any information that they need so that they will be aware of what to be on the lookout for. If you would, give us the phone number and your website address. Okay. The phone number for the Consumer Protection Division is 1-800-281-4418, or they may go to the Attorney General website, which is agjimhood.com. For the Western Union Claims Line, that number is 1-844-319-2124. Bridget Wiggins is the Director of Consumer Protection at the Mississippi Attorney General's Office. Bridget, thank you very much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Coming up, the U.S. Surgeon General is in Mississippi to address the ongoing opioid epidemic. We'll hear his recommendations. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
I'm an artist. I like to paint. I'm a chef. I like to cook. I like to eat. Join Robert St. John and Wyatt Waters this season in beautiful Tuscany. Next time on the season finale, Wyatt paints in the countryside as Robert encounters a mad butcher. The food, the culture, the art. It's a great place. We went over there and we fell in love with it. And we love sharing it with other people. Join us for Palette to Palette with Robert St. John and Wyatt Waters, Thursday at 7.30 on MPB. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The U.S. Surgeon General is in Mississippi to hear what state officials are doing to combat the opioid crisis. Dr. Jerome Adams is urging partnerships between agencies, law enforcement, and the medical and faith-based communities. During his visit to the University of Mississippi Medical Center, officials talked about a list of collaborations, including prescription monitoring and town hall meetings. Dr. Adams also encouraged the drug Narcan because it reverses an overdose. He tells UMMC's Dr. Claude Brunson more about his priorities for healthier communities. My umbrella priority is better health through better partnerships because I'm convinced that if we can be better partners, then we will see health improve. And I'm also convinced we haven't been great partners, particularly in the health care arena. We don't even partner with the public health folks. We see those two as separate, much less think about interacting with the law enforcement community, the faith-based community, the educational community, the business community, all those other folks out there who are actually critical in terms of implementing policies that will ultimately improve health. Now, under that umbrella of better health through better partnerships, I have three sub-priorities. We have a focus on the opioid epidemic, obviously, but uh, I also want to issue a Surgeon General's report on health and economic prosperity, the premise being that healthier communities are more prosperous communities. We know that number one cost for Fortune 500 companies is salary. Number two cost for most Fortune 500 companies is health care. So if we can show individuals that, uh, that there's a link and have them carry our water for us, I think we'll be, we'll be better for it. And we know we can. Uh, healthier communities have less absenteeism, uh, greater productivity, decreased workplace accidents. They're a place where folks want to move to. So from a business point of view, we have to make the link and help engage folks to address healthier communities if we want to be more prosperous communities. And then my final priority is health and national security. Why does the Surgeon General care about national security? Well, number one issue that people vote on, Democrat or Republican, is jobs and the economy. And the governor can tell you that. Any of your legislators in here will tell you that. Folks care about, can I feed my family? Can I pay the bills? What are the job opportunities like in our community? Number two issue people vote on, Democrat or Republican, is safety and security. And right now, 70% of our 18 to 24-year-olds are ineligible for military service. 70% are ineligible for military service because they can't pass the physical, because they can't meet the educational requirements, or because they have a criminal background record. So our poor health is not just a matter of chronic disease 20 or 30 years down the road. Our nation's poor health means we are a less safe country right now. And so I think there's a real opportunity there to engage the Department of Defense, the military entities out there, to lift up community health. And that's why I'm focused on those areas during my tenure as Surgeon General. Just last month, you announced the first Surgeon General's advisor in over 10 years. 
Can you touch on why you chose to focus the advisory on naloxone and opioid overdose? Right now, we've got a person dying from an opioid overdose every 12 and a half minutes. In the time we've been here, at least one person has died from an opioid overdose. But here's the key. 77% of those overdoses are occurring outside of the medical setting, and over 55% are occurring at home. It takes about four minutes before you have irreversible brain injury from anoxia. Our first responders are critical, but we're not going to dig ourselves out of this hole by simply telling people, call 911 if you see someone who's overdosed. I can't tell you how many parents I've met, and I'm tired of meeting mothers and fathers who've lost their sons and daughters to an overdose. And then you dig into the story and you hear that, oh my gosh, they overdosed in the garage, or they overdosed in the bathroom, or they overdosed in the bedroom, and someone was there, but they weren't equipped to respond. So we need everyone to understand that naloxone is available in all 50 states to third parties, and I know the governor and Mary are working to put together regulations and rules to make it even more available in Mississippi to third parties. But I want everyone to think about whether they or someone who they love or someone who they're going to encounter might be at risk for an opioid overdose, because any one of you, any, anyone in the community can be a lifesaver. America's Surgeon General Dr. Jerome Adams with UMMC's Dr. Claude Brunson. Coming up, do you know how to respond if someone stops breathing or is bleeding heavily? Find out what you can do and how to do it. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Last time on the Gestalt Gardener. You know, I walk here in the mornings, and uh, did I already say it kicked my butt this morning? It's a, not quite two and a half miles each way. Sort of get pumped for the program, you know. I see dead pine trees here and there, random trees. Most of the time, they've been struck by lightning, and they get a lot of pine beetles in them. So anyway, if you've got a pine tree that turns completely brown, the ends of the branches are dead, uh, chances are if it wasn't struck by lightning, didn't have root damage, it's pine bark beetles. And for more garden advice, tune in to the Gestalt Gardener today, 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Emergency response officials are encouraging Mississippians to learn how to take matters into their own hands. Hands-only CPR is a life-saving technique that can help keep a trauma victim alive until emergency responders arrive on the scene. AMR locations will be offering drop-in classes on hands-only CPR next week during National EMS Week. Jim Pollard is public affairs manager at emergency response company AMR. He and clinical services manager Ryan Wilson tell us education and training can save lives. Hundreds of thousands of folks in the U.S. die unnecessarily, needlessly, every year because bystanders or family members just didn't know what to do, such as when someone's heart stops beating or there's a great deal of bleeding. So to help address that needless loss of life. AMR nationwide uh, in 40 states in the District of Columbia uh, coming up uh, National EMS Week will be offering free classes, very short classes uh, without registration required, no certification offered in uh, the most basic form of CPR called hands-only CPR. And uh, also uh, at at the same sessions, uh, very brief, uh, covering how to control bad bleeding. Ryan, let me ask you something. 
what if you don't know if the heart stopped? How do you know if that's the situation? Uh, one of the things we will be teaching people during this time is how do you know when somebody needs CPR? So that's going to be uh, checking for a pulse, checking for breathing. Uh, and when one of those things are absent, how to react and how to get the, the whole process of response uh, started. Jim, when I was younger, we always learned how to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Is that sort of thing still recommended or strictly CPR? A few years ago, research concluded that it's not necessary for the rescuer to breathe into the victim's lungs because there's still oxygen in the bloodstream, which compressions on the victim's chest in the right depth and the right rhythm, the right speed, will keep circulating the oxygen through the body, thereby helping save the patient's life. Ryan, can you give CPR to a baby? Absolutely. That is, you know, the the scariest situation to be in and the time when you have to react the most. So you can absolutely give CPR to any age, including newborns. The technique's a little bit different. And again, that's something that, that we'll show people is how to perform that technique. What can you do wrong? I mean, I know, I know we, we push on the chest. How do you know if you're doing it too hard or too softly? Sure. So the, the technique itself is really the key to the whole thing. Uh, there's kind of two parts of it that we really stress the most, and that's going to be the speed at which you compress and doing it to the tune of staying alive. That's really a great way to, to kind of keep yourself in rhythm uh, and compressing at the right rate. Uh, the other one is going to be depth. So uh, the AHA recommends uh, between about two and two and a half inches. It takes a little bit of practice. So one thing we do offer with this is actual hands-on with a mannequin that's very lifelike uh, so that you can feel uh, what two inches feels like. Because exactly. that's probably one of the biggest mistakes is people not compressing deep enough. And it sounds like, you know, you hear this on the radio. Okay, well, the next time someone's heart stops, I have to remember two, two and a half inches. So it makes sense. You want to see this happen and actually try it yourself. What other mistakes are people making, um, like when it comes to bleeding? You know, a lot of the mistakes we see really has to do with just a lack of understanding and and knowledge of how to react. So one thing we see is when you have a, a family member or a friend, a neighbor that is actually having an emergency, your brain doesn't usually work as smoothly as normal. So, you know, one thing we see is people uh, hesitate to call 911 and sort of activate the emergency response system. So uh, the best thing you can do, call 911 as soon as possible. Even if we, we turn out to not be needed, at least we came. And 911 we will talk you through some things to do? Is that yes. normal? Because they'll stay on the phone and say right. apply pressure or whatever. Right. What about do you do it near the mm-hmm. wound and directly on the wound? Yeah, so there's pretty much three basic steps. So the first thing you want to do if you see very bad bleeding is to just apply pressure with your hand. Just immediately, as quick as you can, uh, put pressure. Then what you want to do is, uh, you know, if you have some sort of bleeding kit, uh, they have uh, kind of gauze bandages that, that you can then uh, put on the wound and apply pressure. You can use a T-shirt, a rag, anything like that. Very hard pressure is the key to it. Uh, then if that is not working, that's when you would apply the tourniquet above the injury. Jim, how can people find out where the classes are and what time and what date? For one uh, source, you can download our application, uh, which is simply AMR Central MS. And then you can also go to the AMR Mississippi Facebook page where these uh, free short classes on hands-only CPR and how to stop bad bleeding will be made available. How long do you expect the class to last? Yeah, so basically we're going to be there all day, and we just want people to kind of come and go as they have a minute and have time. So, yeah, if you can spare five to ten minutes, I promise. 
promise we that will quick? teach you some, yeah. some very, very useful information. So just to stop in at one of these locations. Yes. Great. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We've been speaking with Ryan Wilson. He's the clinical services manager at AMR. And Jim Pollard is the public affairs manager at AMR. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. If AMR doesn't serve your area, another online resource is the American Heart Association at heart.org. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's the Gestalt Gardener. At 10 o'clock, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy for Women. Join MPB at the Trail of Honor tribute to American veterans. For details on this weekend's events, visit mpbonline.org. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again Monday morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org.